0: if you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the House of Deputies Blue Book Podcast. This is going to be a special 2024 podcast leading up to the 81st General Convention. And I dreamt up doing something like a podcast because, one, I love podcasts and I listen to them all the time. And I have some favorites that um, I like to listen to when I'm traveling and on plane rides and that sort of thing because I live half my life on a plane. And then also I started thinking that it might be potentially, perhaps that not all deputies read the entire blue book from cover to cover. And so I thought, well, maybe it might be really good to do a podcast where we could bring in some deputies who've been serving on interim bodies, where they could tell us about the work in their ministry that they've been doing on those interim bodies. And we could bring the blue book to life. So we're starting off this January with Megan Carlson and David Sibley, two deputies that for the past biennium have been working on the importance of wellness in our church. And so I invite you to join us as we unpack some of the complexities around the denominational health plan from Deputy Sibley, who's been on the task force to advise the church on denominational health plans and also our own wellness with Deputy Megan Carlson, who's been on the task force for individuals with mental illness. And these are Blue Book reports that you can read after you listen to this podcast, if you feel so inclined, that will be published through the General Convention Office soon. So welcome, Deputy Carlson and Deputy Sibley, to this first ever House of Deputies Blue Book podcast.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you.
1: I'm so glad that you guys were willing to be our test subjects and uh, get us started with this podcast. And, um, yeah, and that you're helping to further the ministry of the church by educating deputies on the work that you've been doing. I will get started off with Deputy Sibley. Tell us a little bit about yourself beyond um, that you are uh, an Episcopal priest from Walla Walla, Washington. And... um, And tell us a little bit about the diocese you're in and the ministry that you have.
0: It's funny. I've heard that intro of an Episcopal priest from Walla Walla, Washington, before somewhere. Um, (laughs) Yes, my name is David Sibley, and I do serve as the priest at St. Paul's Church in Walla Walla. Uh, I'm in the Diocese of Spokane, which is the eastern portion of the state of Washington and the panhandle of the state of Idaho. If it's in Pacific time in Idaho, it's in our diocese. Um, My context is a parish where uh, there is not another full-time Episcopal um, parish with a full-time cleric uh, within 50 miles of us. Uh, Walla Walla is relatively remote. We're not tiny, but we aren't huge. It's a town of about 36,000 people all in all. Um, and so, and I'm serving in a diocese that has uh, a relatively few parishes that have full time priests or uh, even part time lay staff. Um, it seems a little bit strange in the year 2024 to say that my context is out on the frontier. Uh, but as you drive across the Palouse and uh, across the eastern slopes of the Cascades, you see that the distances here are vast and the communities that we serve are are small and that was a lot of the context that i brought to uh the work on the interim bodies looking at the denominational health plan
1: oh thank you david and i forgot to ask our fun icebreaker question so i'm gonna ask david then i'll get to you deputy carlson so for our icebreaker question for this podcast what is a song that you a favorite song that you listen to in your teenage years that you still rock out to when no one's around
0: you know that this is really difficult because i (laughs) listened to way too much npr in my teenage (laughs) years which is not known for playing bops so i'm gonna substitute i'm gonna reject the, the question and substitute my own and move it up to college and uh Guster's whole album "Lost and Gone Forever" remains a bop, and it's like twenty or thirty years old at this point—probably twenty <laughs> years old, twenty-five years old. Um, but any of the music on that album, I could absolutely rock out to and tend to sing in the car when there's no one watching.
1: Excellent. So this is some. This these are this is music that your infant daughter Nora or toddler daughter Nora at this point probably yeah. would know.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, not yet, uh, because when we are in the car together, we get to listen to children's songs in Arabic and other <laughs> assorted and sundry things from, from my very strange family. Uh, but uh, the day is coming. Soon, soon.
1: Deputy Megan Carlson, will you tell us about a little bit about yourself, what diocese you're in, your ministry, and your teenage favorite song to rock out to?
2: All right, well, thank you for having me today. I'm excited to talk about um, mental illness and uh, general wellness in the church for this podcast. So I am Megan Carlson. I'm a deputy out of the Diocese of North Carolina, which is almost the entire state of North Carolina, except for where it's officially called the mountains and officially called the beach. So I like to think of it as we're the unfun part of North Carolina. Um, <laughs> so I have grown up at Saint Stephen's Episcopal Church in Durham, North Carolina, which is about equal distance from UNC and Duke, uh, which are both have major medical centers. So I've grown up sort of in that medical. Like none of my family is in the medical field, um, but that notion of being in and around medical professionals all of my life medical professional like my doctor attended the same church that I did which my parents are pediatrician which my parents were thrilled about um so as we're talking about I am lay leadership in the church i just this past tuesday so about a week ago now was elected as a warden of the church so i'm excited oh, to start congratulations uh, yeah, advancing my lay leadership um in in ways and really looking at the the national level for things that are national level and local for things that are local level, so I, I'm excited to
1: sort of are start. Are you this the work. youngest warden your church has ever had? Then,
2: um, if I am, it's probably only by a few months. Uh, I had a friend of mine who I pushed to get on vestry, and then she ended up being
1: warden, <laughs> and she was nice. Uh, <laughs> She was With like, "Look, Megan." Like these, I- Megan. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, but she was uh, again a PhD research scientist looking at cancer, and so they were like, "Oh, she should be a good warden of the church." Was like, "Yeah," um, but I, I've done a pretty good job of making sure that young folks are getting on our our vestry and attending our diocesan convention and hoping to get some folks at the young adult festival for general convention. Uh, I think those are important avenues of of growth in the church, um, but yeah, so I, I'm excited in my lay leadership um, context.
1: And what was your what's the song that you still rock out to from your teenage years?
2: So from my teenage years, I mean anything Brad Paisley I would have rocked out to. Uh, <laughs> But the song that we would turn up in the car regardless of like where we were or like what else was going on in a conversation was Dust on the Bottle uh, by David Lee Murphy, uh, which is about a homemade winemaker, uh, which for fun fact about me, I am leading an initiative to uh, create a ministry around uh, making wine in the church context. Oh. So we're about to start planting grapes this spring and, and working through all the biblical stories about grapes and winemaking.
1: Um, oh, very cool. They're in North Carolina? In North Carolina, yeah. Oh, North so, Carolina wine.
2: Yeah. So it I
1: think maybe comes from a little bit from that
2: song. <laughs> and that, like, dusty bottles in a church basement. <laughs>
1: Well, one of the titles for this podcast that we threw around was live from the church basement. It's the Blue Book Report. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, Megan, I'm going to go ahead and get started with you first. Um, will you tell us some about your interim body, um, which I think has some one of the more unfortunate names of interim bodies in the Episcopal Church entitled the Task Force on Individuals with Mental Illness? I hope... In the future, we can you know, change some of those titles so it could be something like mental wellness, wellness rather than illness. But could you tell us about what initiatives are coming out of that interim body that will be going to this 81st General Convention?
2: I'd be glad to. So a little bit of background on this task force. It was established in 2018, so this is a second convention task force this time around, and it was established by caregivers of individuals with mental illness. And and their focus was really how do we make sure that our children are feeling welcomed in the church? Uh, And that Mm. was very much a guiding point that doing this work as a way to bring voice to a voiceless population or a population Mm. that due to health concerns, was unable unable to speak during certain times. Mm -hmm. Uh, As well as the fact that for caregivers and individuals with mental illness, uh, it is a very stigmatizing time. Um, and right. not a time that is talked about. Now, in terms of the title individuals with mental illness, it's kind of the, the proper way to sort of say in terms of person first language, uh, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate, but a much broader, well, the way we looked at it wasn't necessarily mental illness, but was that mental health aspect, that mental mm-hmm. wellness uh, from that entire spectrum of if you've got a diagnosis versus if it's a situational versus just general mental wellness and life. So that's sort of the background. Uh, As we started doing our work, we were given sort of three main tasks to accomplish. And they were tasks that were easily accomplishable, create some resources, uh, maybe create a baseline curriculum and get some trainers in what is called mental health first aid, which were very easy to accomplish tasks. But as we're starting to work on those tasks, the question came up of how do we keep this as sustainable? it's all well and good for a task force of general convention to complete a task Mm -hmm. but what happens afterwards and for our work we didn't see a natural sort of next step or next body to take over so yes we can train a bunch of instructors and mental health first aid and put it out to the church hey get everyone uh, trained as a mental health first aider, the same way you would maybe for generalized first aid same way you would for safe church but there's nobody who's Mm -hmm at that stage now to take ownership of that training. Um, so how do we, we build up that ownership? How do we have these curriculum or these resource documents? How do we make sure that they live on and they, they don't become outdated the moment they're printed in the blue book, which you will be able to find the entire curriculum and it's 30 plus pages in the blue book, as well as the nice. six resource documents and the six uh, liturgies that we sort of created with each of these resource documents. Um, so we were like, we were really looking into how do we move this on to the next stage? Because as a second convention task force, we couldn't just create a new task force or we could create an entirely new task force, but you're not supposed to by canon laws uh, and rules of order. So we were in consultation with yourself, (laughs) Julia, (laughs) Michael, Glass. uh, we, We started thinking through what could be a next step. I think what we landed on is probably the best for right now. It may not be the best long-term is creating a standing commission that would be a standing commission on human health and wellness. So the entire sort of expression of human health and wellness. Our thoughts were that mental health is only part of the picture. It may be the center part of that picture in many ways, well, the spiritual, uh, but that's taken care of in other commissions, um, but that you then put that mental health at the center and by doing things related to mental health you're also going to do things related to physical health you're going to do things related to uh, safety you're going to do things related to health care uh, whether that's uh, looking at suicide prevention which 50 percent of gun deaths in the u.s are attributed to suicide so if you really want to look at gun prevention and reducing deaths by guns it, it, it is looking at suicide which again goes back to that mental health component I do want to shout out to the Keep Watch program in Atlanta um, for what their work is doing. And so in our Blue Book report, we tried to highlight all the different things that we heard about going on in the Episcopal Church to help support the notion that maybe a centralized commission would help those organizations grow um, to be better, as well as for initiatives like David's with this health plan. Um, having, I, I'm sure he can talk to this much better, whether or not he had someone within the church that he could really talk to or, or that his group could like cling to. Um, I mean, I'm looking at other task force that we were looking at other task force around and that are often created uh, things on like migration um, and immigration and that mm-hmm. being part of human health and wellness. But again, centered on that mental health theme and, and just really thinking about generalized health. So that's our big push as well as continuing those mental health uh, curriculum, mental health first aid, uh, and church-wide generalized training um, in service to potentially making it as big an issue or as central to teaching of new clergy as safe church um, or anything we're doing with uh, racial reconciliation.
1: Yeah, that is so important. That is where you all and your your task force is really challenging the 81st General Convention to look into our baptismal covenant in the seeking and serving Christ in all persons and that sense of uh, breaking down the stigma around mental health, but also in this overall wellness. One of the things that was really interesting when um, I was able to sit with you all on the task force and then continue to partner with you throughout this biennium, was looking at the history of resolutions and task forces and initiatives around mental health and and human wellness and that sort of thing. We've had a standing commission in the past on human wellness that we then dismantled, which is fine, standing commissions can come and go. But it was also really interesting to see this massive influx of resolutions, I think particularly since the pandemic around mental health and since um, in current culture, we're sort of destigmatizing to some extent mental health. And um, I'm just, I, I, I'm so supportive and so excited and hopeful about the Standing Commission on Human Health and Wellness. And I really appreciate your leadership in that task force and that task force's leadership going into General Convention. And on that note, since Megan was kind of hand, re- referencing you, uh, Deputy David Sibley, do you wanna tell us about your interim body and what you all are bringing?
0: Buckle up, everyone. We're about to go into the deeply <laughs> entrancing world of health insurance. Um, so uh, a lot of this started years ago, but um, uh, at last general convention, the, the the convention decided that we needed to take a, a thorough examination of how we provision health care for clergy and lay employees of the church. Uh, if you look at your average congregation's budget you're gonna find that generally there are two things that, that, that drive a congregational budget. The first is buildings. That's, that's a fixed cost, it, 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 it comes with the territory. But generally more than buildings, uh, staff is your single greatest expense, staff salaries, staff pensions, or uh, staff retirement. And if uh, those staff are uh, working over, uh, over a certain amount each year, staff health benefits. And if you go across the church, one of the things you find over and over and over is that the cost of health benefits is rising. Um, That's not unique to the church, but the church certainly is really feeling the pressure uh, as each individual congregation decides how they are going to do ministry in the years to come. Um, these are the questions that inform, do we have a full-time parish administrator or not? Do we have a three-quarter time youth minister? Do we have a clergy person who is full-time or three-quarter time or right. below half-time or not? Um, a big question for parish vitality is, is, is centered uh, in the, the people who uh, really do, through their employment, uh, have a mandate to draw together all the leadership of the parish to make ministry happen. And uh, the church has said over the years that we deeply care about making sure that we provide quality health insurance benefits to them, and we do that in a way that's going to be most cost efficient. The problem is, is people's lived experience of this has, has varied dramatically across the church. Uh, people have noticed that they can go out to an individual market and perhaps get a much lower rate than we're getting through our pooled health care through the denominational health plan. Uh, perhaps they've uh, looked at um, they've looked at their budget, or they've been in a clergy hiring process and decided, you know what, we're going to hire an older cleric because we don't have to provide full family health insurance for them Mm, uh, and we can afford it. Or uh, perhaps they've, they've looked at, at at what is out there and just said, you know, we can't get a lay ministry professional because we can't afford their benefits. Like people Mm -hmm. have experienced this cost over and over and over again. And they've experienced it often being out of touch with uh, what their peers are paying in other industries or in other church denominations or in other places. So, General Convention gave the DHP Task Force, and I'm not using the full formal name because we it would take forever. Um, with so for shorthand, we'll call it DHP Task Force. The DHP Task, Task, Force, Task Force, yeah, exactly. Was charged <laughs> with delivering to General Convention some concrete proposals that might stem or reduce the cost of healthcare to the church, which uh, by reducing costs, we relieve strain on congregational and diocesan budgets. We ensure the ability of more lay professionals to be on staffs of parishes uh, or in in three quarter time ministry. Generally, the more people we are able to compensate fairly for their labor, the better. And uh, we wanna reduce that costs. Um, It's a very, daunting task to undertake this in a biennium and in really a year Uh, but uh, we had a a task force uh that was comprised of folks from uh all over the church um we had all of the domestic provinces were represented in appointed membership um we had two actuarial experts Uh, we had leadership from the church pension group which administers the denominational health plan and we got together very quickly and realized that we needed to do really in-depth study of what's working and what's not. And thanks to support from executive council and the general convention office and others, mm-hmm. uh, we were able to, act, to have an outside firm design a study that they could do with the actuarial precision that just can't be done by a group of volunteers uh, working as an interim body for general convention. But and, you
1: also wanted a third party, didn't you? Someone who, yes, a non, someone an, who is unbiased.
0: Exactly. We wanted, we wanted and agreed uh, very quickly that it was worthwhile for us to get a party that hadn't been advising the DHP before, that mm-hmm. hadn't been touching the structure of healthcare in the Episcopal Church um, with real expertise in the field and the ability to look at this with completely fresh eyes so that, you know, you don't have somebody who's been in the trenches building Frankenstein's monster to the point where you're committed to what you've already done and can't see things in new ways. <laughs> um, and that report gave us a lot of really unique insights about how we are provisioning health care in the Episcopal Church. Um, mm-hmm. The first one that may surprise a lot of people is that the dominational health plan is likely still the most efficient and cost-effective way for us to deliver healthcare to the church. Mm. A lot of people don't believe it, but I promise at the end of the day, it's very likely true. Mm. Uh, we've got the data that shows that right now the group is still of a size and the population is still uh, distributed in such a way that it, it, it is an efficient mechanism for delivering care. Uh, The challenges though are there are ways that we need to make it more efficient. Some of those will be popular and some of them won't and General Convention will have before it the task of deciding how much uh, the church is is ready to take um, in uh, providing for those benefits. So a few things we noticed. One is that General Convention's actions uh, a little over a decade ago tried to move everything in the US towards a single national rate for health care. Everyone mm-hmm. sort of thought when we when we adopted the, the denominational health plan that the way that we do this is by charging a single national rate. That will be the most effective way to distribute and and pay for care. The problem is, is that cost of living and health care costs vary so dramatically by location mm-hmm. and not only by location, um, but it doesn't necessarily line up with you, what you might expect. For instance, if I asked people to tell me where healthcare costs a lot, a lot of people would say New York, right off the bat. Like it's a major right. metropolitan city that's known for being expensive. Mm-hmm. What they wouldn't tell me is South Dakota, which has among the highest per capita healthcare costs in the country. Really? And if you, yes, South Dakota and Alaska are two places that have extremely high healthcare costs and also do not have the resourcing that mm-hmm. our church often has, which is often concentrated on our coasts in particular, mm-hmm. um, and so by one of the things we are doing by establishing a single national rate at the moment is we are often making less resourced areas subsidize cost and higher care areas, but that mm-hmm. is linked with the reality that not everybody can pay the going rate in their area, and so one of the things that that we are proposing is that we start setting a benchmark in the DHP based on both the prevailing cost of care in an area and a a given body's ability to pay. Um, We can use the interdependency of the church to help weigh out some of those rough edges, but while also noting that we can't be asking each part of the country to subsidize at a rate that that is not in line uh, with the prevailing cost of living. Uh, Another thing that we discovered is, boy, you Episcopal employees love rich benefits. Um, (laughs) And everybody does. And in a a civilized world, we would have the most efficient entity to deliver health care to people. And that would be a single payer system through the government. It is the most efficient way to deliver health care at scale and at good cost. Uh, But we do not live in that world. Uh, and in the absence of that world, people want rich benefits at the lowest possible cost. One of the things we discovered is that in our richest top two plans that are offered through the medical trust, um, those plans are being subsidized heavily by mm-hmm. some of the less rich plans in the medical trust. And the challenge of that is, is fundamentally, I think, a justice issue. Because generally speaking, if you are not in a rich health care plan, it's because you can't afford it, not because you don't want it. Um, if you, are, if you are, have no deductible on the year and very, very low out-of-pocket costs, that plan costs more, um, but you have to pay for it. Whereas if you've got a higher deductible and higher out-of-pocket costs, that plan costs less and you don't pay for it. But very few people, if they cost the same, would not choose that richer plan. And so it's fundamentally an issue of justice that we have to we have to really look at when people who are not able to afford higher and richer plans are functionally subsidizing those rich plans. Mm -hmm. Right. We, We if if you are in a parish with a constrained budget, and your lay employee or your professional is on a high deductible health plan because that's what's affordable, um, some portion of your premiums right now are in fact gravitating to other places that have richer health plans. And so one of the recommendations we're making, and we know it will be controversial, is that the richest health plans need to move towards paying for themselves. That the rates for those rich health plans need to be set in such a way that the people that can't afford them are not subsidizing them. That is a reality that we're seeing happen at scale across the church in every location. Wow. One of the final things I'm really excited about that we did is really a credit to the work of Bishop Susan Brown Snook of San Diego. Uh, Early on in our work, we started hearing reports about healthcare, especially to indigenous clergy, not meeting the standards that we need. and it became a regular refrain. And when we had open hearings for the church, we, we heard about it directly um, from people, especially in Navajo land. Uh, years ago, the federal government set up the Indian Health Service to provide health insurance for people uh, in, uh, affiliated with uh, the indigenous tribes. And years ago, it was a relatively effective way of delivering healthcare. Um, it is not anymore. And unfortunately, the way the Episcopal Church had set up its budgeting processes, the way it had set up its cost efficiency processes is we were largely content to let the IHS do our heavy lifting, especially in resource constrained places like the Navajo Land Area Mission, uh, and let that be the primary source of healthcare for indigenous clergy. Um, It's not working, and we heard that it is not working. Uh, and we, we see that this, this affects uh, any number of dioceses that have high numbers of indigenous clergy, like the Dakotas, the Navajo Area Mission, and Alaska in particular. Um, Bishop, Bishop Susan really heard this and went to town, working and negotiating and navigating all the labyrinthine structures of both the church and the pension group, trying to figure out how we solve this problem and coming before a convention will be a resolution uh, that should, if it's passed, um, have the whole church acknowledge our responsibility to our indigenous clergy in such a way that we as a whole church, no matter where you are, are taking on a small portion of that cost so that we can assure that indigenous clergy in Navajo land in Alaska in North and South Dakota can be in the denominational health plan and not on IHS that they can get the care that they need at the standard that they need and at a price that those dioceses can actually afford because right now it's beyond the realm of their resourcing. That required lobbying on the budget side. It required working with the pension group to commit to this goal. Uh, And one of the most exciting things is from the work of the interim body, even before we gather in convention, Uh, Executive Council uh, and CPG worked together, heaven forbid, uh, to uh, make sure that in Navajo land, those clergy are insured now.
1: Right now, Um, yeah. We found the money for it,
0: we got them enrolled. Uh, It is happening right as we speak, right now, and people are getting that care now. But to carry Mm -hmm. it forward beyond general convention, we're going to need to adopt some of these changes so that we are making the structure church-wide in such a way that all of us are acknowledging our dependence and our reliance on these clergy and their ministry, these lay professionals in their ministry and making sure we are not shirking our responsibility to them and just willingly handing it off to substandard care provided by the federal government. Um, so it's, it's a real testament. Bishop Susan did incredible work to make this happen. Uh, and we believe the wider palette of changes that we are proposing also keep that structure sustainable into the future. So our goal here at the end of the day is not just to slash benefits, it's not just to cut costs, and that's what people are used to, but it's trying to cultivate the real kind of interdependency we require as a church if we are going to buy health insurance together. The understanding that I may be in the Diocese of Spokane, but I have something at stake in Navajo or I may be in the Diocese of Long Island, but I have something at stake in the Diocese of Iowa, that we care for one another within the boundaries and the resources that we have to do it, while also making sure we are being fair and making sure that no particular part of the church is getting access to resources or care that other parts can't. So it's been incredible work the task force has done. I'm really hopeful General Convention will pass this. Again, you, you muck with people's benefits and there's no telling what will happen. Uh, but there's a, there's a package of proposals that we really hope will give parishes some assurance of stability um, and diocese and missions and anyone that's on church health insurance uh, that they can plan their ministry in the years ahead and not necessarily feel that they're being left behind or left out of sync, um, especially as resources can become tight. So that's, that's the long summary of our work
1: it will help us also to live into the how we will become future church going forward one of the absolutely so much deputy Sibley. one of the things i was going to ask you all that i think is unbelievably evident so i'm not sure if it's worth asking but i'm going to ask it anyway is how these initiatives that you all are talking about from your interim bodies are challenging us as a church to live into our baptismal covenant at this these initiatives that are coming into the 81st general convention are challenging us to do all kinds of things around mental health and wellness, as well as um, what that means for the more technical side for the denominational health plan and finances. But do you all wanna chime in and I just go for it? We can have an open core, conversation. Yeah.
0: I think at its core, you know, my task force has been dealing with actuarial stuff for lack of a better term. Um, Megan has been able to, to to look more at sort of qualitative, uh, wholeness and health and wellness. They both Certainly. go to the same end, and one of the things I hear coming out of both of them is we have to ask ourselves as we consider all these proposals, um, what we have at stake for the life and well being of someone we may not know, we yeah. may not see whose ministry may be dramatically different from ours and decide whether we have something at stake in that. And I think that's fundamentally a challenge, especially when you talk about money, especially when you are trying to deliver the needs of your local context at the absolute lowest possible cost, because you could do X and Y and Z. And I think it will always challenge us because it it makes us step back and ask, okay, when I get right down to it, what is the ministry of my sibling in a completely different context, with completely different resourcing, with completely different needs, worth? And I think we get challenged any time that we are charged with, with answering that question.
2: Yeah, I totally agree, and from our context, it's actually, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, um, Is there's two different parts. The first is the respect, the dignity of every human being. And one of the things that that sort of came up in all of our discussions, especially as we were building out those resource documents, was to react in faith versus reacting in fear, that particularly with mental illness, you have those moments, it's scary when you see mental illness um it's scary if someone comes into your church that you don't know and is having either is having maybe a schizophrenic episode and Mm -hmm. you don't know what to do it's scary but that to react in that faith that we have respecting that dignity of every human being and not just in that fear not just in that we're going to cower in the corner but but Mm -hmm. living out that very specific baptismal covenant um and, and keeping that that Reacting in faith,
1: but not in fear.
0: I, yeah, I, I, I really like that. I, think, Ugh, I love uh, it so for,
1: much. <laughs>
0: one, of, one of, my poor congregation has heard this mantra from my lips so many, many times, but I earnestly believe it, is that God always puts in front of us the resources that we need to answer God's call at a given time. They are always there. Sometimes it challenges us because it requires us doing something, getting mental health first aid training, looking out for these resources, committing people's time and energy and effort to it. Sometimes it requires us to say, you know, we've got to bite the bullet and pay a little more here so that someone over there can thrive. Um, But the resources are always there. We don't have a resourcing problem at the end of the day, whether we're talking about time, whether we're talking about attention, what we have at the end of the day very often is a faith problem. That, that we can make a transition from point A to point B, that we can go uh, in a new direction that is different and embrace it. And, you know, for goodness sakes, the church hasn't survived 2000 years on the abilities of middle management, right? <laughs> like we're not here because we are making uh, the most amazing decisions all the time. We will screw up, like it, it will happen. Yet the resources that God needs us to, God lays in front of us to answer God's call is always there, right? It's a faith question. It's not a fear question. And sometimes it's being willing to have the faith to fail, to try Mm -hmm. something and see how it works and give it our best and then respond to what comes after that. Yeah, that's it's,
2: it's it is. And that's what we were seeing is that there's plenty of resources out there. It's just taking that opportunity to take to learn and to to build that that knowledge up. And then the second thing that we we were constantly discussing was loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's sort of two parts to that implied in that covenant is the fact that you love yourself. Um, And, and really, how do we embody loving ourselves and sort of that self care that need, particularly post pandemic, that recognition of self care. And what happens if you don't take care of yourself? Are you able to care for others?
1: Mm-hmm. Are
2: you able to love others as yourself? Because loving others as yourself in that moment is not the full expression of love. Right. Um, so we very much were sort of, those are sort of our guiding things as we were looking at those baptismal covenants and, and thinking through like, yes, we, We need to find structures and ways to allow those two covenants to really be strong. Um, But also, looking at both of those and saying, well, we've got all these caregivers who are caring for folks, and how are we caring for those? How do we care for the caregivers? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a very important part, Um, and those are not necessarily the ones that you're thinking about when you're thinking about caring for others or loving your neighbor as yourself love your neighbor's wife as well, or love your neighbor's mother, or love your neighbor's daughter, the one who's coming over um, at odd hours because they're, they're worried about their neighbor or their, their family member.
1: When you mentioned loving yourself, it, I immediately started thinking of caregivers. And because when we talk about people who struggle with self-love and we talk about caregivers, we're also, you know, statistically speaking, we're talking about women. Right, we are more often than not talking about it's a gendered component to all of that. Women tend to be caregivers, and it's also in that where caregivers are always giving so much of themselves that it is so difficult to find that self love and to prioritize um, self care. Or I am a, I am working on self compassion, um, you know, allowing myself to make mistakes and having compassion on myself like I would for a friend and i think that what you all are doing on this task force or even modeling on the task force what you will model at general convention in this podcast um is already going to be so helpful to so many um i'm just so excited and inspired <laughs> i'm just so thrilled with how this first podcast is going <laughs> i'm grateful to deputy sibley and deputy carlson for being amazing first time guests. And speaking of excitement, I want to ask, so what are you all most excited about coming up at this 81st general convention in Louisville? It can be anything. Oh, and there are like six or something official ways of pronouncing Louisville, (laughs) but I believe none of them are Louisville. (laughs) Just a heads up. David Deputy Simply is shaking his head no, for those of you who can't see. But what are you most excited about?
0: Oh, um I mean there, there's there's the completely self-serving and snarky answer is is work on the DHP task force will be done. Like I'm excited for that. it's, it's been a lot of work. It will be a lot of work. I, I will be ready for some respite when it's done. Um you know, general convention is a locus of a lot for the church. You know, there, there's a lot of emotion pinned on it. There is a lot of self-conception, uh, a lot of energy. And it, it's one of those things that, that, you know, certain segments love of the church love and certain segments of the church absolutely love to hate. Uh, and yet they all get there. We all get there in the same room and we, we do our thing. Um. I think what I appreciate about general convention and have come to appreciate more and more is that somehow, no matter how jaded or frustrated you may be, uh, no matter how the legislative process has gone, no matter what is happening next, somehow every time I have gone, I've been able to pick out somewhere somehow that the Holy spirit worked her will in spite of our best efforts hmm. and for me the joy in general convention comes in seeing that right that we will get in the weeds uh there will be personality clashes there will be politics there will be all the messy stuff that come happens when humans come together it doesn't matter whether they're church humans or secular humans there's always going to be mess when humans gather but the thing that i find Useful and meaningful and edifying and exciting is seeing that the spirit works anyway, despite our best attempts uh, to to forestall it. And so for me, the excited thing is, I don't know what the thing will be. I just know that it will be there and Mm -hmm. being able to find out what it is, whether it's our next presiding bishop, whether it's the way we do ministry in the next triennium and beyond, whether it's something that hasn't even hit our radar as a church yet. I have faith that God will do something. And that's that's what excites me at the end of the day, more than anything else. Faithful surprises. Yay. Oh, well,
2: mine isn't quite as, as eloquent. Um, I'm also realizing that I should probably tell folks that I'm fairly young on this podcast. They can't exactly see that. Um,
0: so I, 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 I do not know how to respond to that remark. <laughs> like this is getting me right to my core.
1: We're all <laughs> versions of young in some capacity. But yeah, go ahead, Megan.
2: <laughs> so I, I, my, this will be my second official convention as a deputy. Mm-hmm. My first one was the COVID convention. Um, prior to the COVID convention, I went as a young adult for the Young Adult Festival in Austin, Um, where I was injured before injured right before coming, so I was hobbling around on a cane (laughs) for (laughs) a week in Austin. (laughs) So I am excited for a convention where I am healthy. (laughs) I'm excited for a convention that is a full expression of convention because the COVID convention was not exactly that. Um, right, it was. Definitely, we knew that we needed to meet as a body and we met as a body and we met as a body and we did not we just we essentially ate, slept and drank in that convention room. So I'm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I'm looking forward to it being a little bit more relaxed this time around. Um, then it was the last time as well as bringing back the, the hall of exhibitors, because uh, I do find that to be a wonderful chance for all the different ministries of the church to sort of come together in a fantastic way and you can just wander around this hall and learn so much about mm-hmm. everything that's going on in a way that like yeah you can maybe surf the internet but there's just something about it just being in that room and honestly it's if you're
1: episcopal comic-con yes
2: that's <laughs> the only way to describe it um, I just i I, only reason I would hesitate is that I don't necessarily want a bunch of folks showing up in costumes but they
0: can <laughs> you do realize <laughs> we're having Eucharist right like there, <laughs> there are costumes are part of the deal
2: I mean like I mean, you don't actually see folks dressing up as their favorite saint
0: right
1: um, I love that uh, I tried to do that. I don't don't know. maybe we start something <laughs>
2: but so i'm i'm just excited to see sort of a more uh, no, i hate to use the term normal but a more normalized um convention experience mm-hmm.
1: the um, big family also, reunion
2: yeah big family reunion and really having bringing back more of that party atmosphere not that like we're partying constantly mm-hmm. but that excitement that feeling of like this is a joyful thing to do versus mm-hmm. i think the covid one was a little bit of a downer um, yeah
1: the the celebration fiesta was was missing from the COVID convention yeah yeah
2: so i'm i am excited for that um i mean i'm also excited to see this is my first time on a task force and to see that that work sort of come to fruition is and and to watch it work through the process from uh, legislative committee onto the floor and then I, mean, I think most of our, our resolutions, who knows if they're going to end up on the um, consent calendar, if they're going to actually get to be presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at least the standing commission has to be presented because it's a change of canons, but yeah. to, to see in that body, that thing that we started out as a small little thing, grow.
1: <laughs> and to be able to participate in that way. Yes. Well, I am so excited that you both said yes to being a part of this House of Deputies Blue Book podcast, and that you were willing to be our very first guests on this brand new podcast. I've been um, sort of like what Deputy Sibley said, looking for signs of the Holy Spirit each day, and I read something to look for glimmers um, in your throughout your day. So you all have been a huge glimmer of my day today (laughs) coming in here and being a part of this and helping to um, connect and educate the House of Deputies on what's going to be coming toward us as we are in Louisville at the 81st General Convention and bringing the Blue Book to life in addition to what Deputy Scott Gunn will do. (laughs) So we'll just all um, be very well educated on the Blue Book and uh, the issues that are coming before this 81st General Convention. and educated deputy is a, is a fabulous deputy. So thank you all for being here with us. I appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to seeing you in Louisville.